Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward to a good day today and hearing from you about whatever you want to talk about regarding your landscape, your garden, uh, lawns. Oh, we'll even talk about houseplants if you like. Uh, this is a wonderful time of year to be out and gardening. My goodness, the weather is giving us a little bit of a break. It's awful sunny. I, I could use a little bit more rain, but hey, we're not going to complain after what we went through this summer. Uh, but it's a, it's a good time to be out, and there's a lot to be doing outside. I've got a number of questions that have come in by email, and uh, first of all, get a pen, if you would, and write down our phone number, because we'd like you to give us a call so we can talk about what you want to talk about. And first of all, our phone number, 979-845-5689, 845-5689, and our email, gardensuccess at tamu dot edu garden success that's one word at tamu dot edu well let's see we've got a number of emails so i'm going to go ahead and jump in and uh, talk about some of those and then we'll we'll get to some announcements of things going on and hopefully uh, hear from you and talk a little bit about things that you're interested in had a question come in from Robert, uh, and it was about a lawn area that is sort of dying out. It was basically healthy before this past summer hit it, uh, and now there are very few sprigs of the St. Augustine surviving. Uh, you can see low green sprigs here and there. And the question is, um, you know, is it going to recover and make a decent lawn? Do we need to plant plugs or just give up on a lawn altogether? And um, so I, I would say, first of all, don't give up on a lawn there. But it's a little bit of a gray line between whether you leave the grass and let it fill in and whether you go ahead and plug in more. And I generally think that if you've got some good, healthy sprigs that are about a foot apart, and this is in the springtime, that it will fill in well uh, by the time you get into midsummer if it has good water and uh, nutrients and so on. If, if the gaps are bigger than about a foot, I think that it's going to be a little bit slower. And the issue with those bare areas is weed seeds are going to come up. Wherever the sunlight hits the soil, nature plants a weed. So your options are from most expensive and most instant benefit to less expensive and longer term, uh, it takes longer for the benefit to arrive, would be a solid sod. Just ignore what you have because it is pretty sparse and just put solid sod in now, get it down and, and be done with it. The problem with the word now in that sentence is we're entering a time when St. Augustine is not rooting as much. The root development is going downhill really quickly and it's going to hang on over winter and then after it begins to warm up, not just you know, a warm day in late February, but we're talking about getting into later March even uh, before it's growing at a little better rate. And then by the time we get into April, we're getting some significant growth and some good rooting occurring. And so I hate to lay sod down at a time when uh, it's just not going to root in really well. It doesn't mean it'll die. It just means it's a, you know, this is a very narrow strip of dirt underneath that turf that comes in with sod. 
and uh, we would like it to get roots down. So I think if it were mine, uh, I would do one of two things. I would probably uh, just wait and watch and be prepared in the spring to get rid of any weeds that are in there and then lay the sod down. Uh, that uh, would be the fastest. Now going to the other end of the spectrum, you're taking the sprigs you've already got and coaxing them to fill back in, keeping in mind that you're going to have a lot of weeds coming in and among it. Uh, some of the products to control weeds can be hard on St. Augustine. Some of the post-emergence when it's really warm, warm meaning above 85 degrees, uh, can can damage the St. Augustine or weaken it. Uh, some of the pre-emergence can inhibit the runners from rooting out on the runner tips. Um, and so actually, there are several very common products used in pre-emergent that do inhibit rooting, especially when applied at stronger rates than the label. So uh, it's kind of a um, a difficult call at this point. I think I think if it were mine, I would just wait and see and be ready if need be to go in there and, and kill out a section of weeds if need be to put the sod down back next spring. I think that's the best overall approach. If you want to leave your sprigs, wait, save some money on sod and let them start to fill in. That That's a good a good option. But just be ready to live with a weedy lawn for a while while you gradually through mow water and fertilize practices get it to fill back in a little bit thicker. I uh, hope that that helps a little bit. Well let's go to the phones and we're going to talk to Phyllis. Hello Phyllis. Hello. I, um, I was wondering if you have ever heard of a flash death of a post oak. We have a, a giant post oak uh, and it's many years old and my husband uh, usually saw it when he drove home mm -hmm. from work and uh, it was always green mm -hmm. and the next day it all the leaves were brown and um, my irrigation person told me that it was a flash death and that he sees many of these things. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of that? Well, the term flash death, I haven't. I've not heard that call that before. But uh, post oaks, especially when the weather is really warm and the demands are high, can die quite rapidly. Uh, I find that going from green to brown in one day is a little a little hard to believe but um, they do die quite rapidly. And what happens is uh, through whatever cause, it could be uh, anything from soil compaction to trenching to use of certain kinds of products around uh, the, the, the post oak uh, and certainly drought as well, uh, the system is weakened and eventually just it succumbs to a disease. And so think of it as if you took that green tree and dug it up and set it on your driveway. Uh, how long would it take it to turn brown? Well, not very long. Uh, and th essentially what happens is there's a collapse of the system and it, it is completely cut off from any any uh, water that the roots would provide and therefore it just goes downhill. So that's not going to be due to any above ground like a foliage disease or some insect chewing on the foliage. Uh, that's going to be a major root system issue. Uh, and post oaks are notorious for, for dying on us. You know, they're a native plant that lives out there in the, the woods around the Brazos Valley and uh, does quite well, actually. Uh, but when they go down, they can go down fast 
when temperatures are hot and the demands are high? Well, it's a long way from the driveway. Okay. And it's uh, actually in the woods. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, um, uh, a lawnmower, a rotting lawnmower, may have uh, driven over the roots. Mm-hmm. Could it possibly do that? No, that would not have done it. That would not have done it. We're talking about a significant compaction of the soil with vehicle traffic. And trees trees are pretty resilient, and they can take a lot. When they're healthy, they've got stored carbohydrate reserves, and they're healthy. They can take a lot of stress. And you look at them, and they, they look okay. Uh, but when the systems collapse, that can happen rather rapidly. And it often is due to one or more um, more chronic problems that is just adding up to, uh, I guess, the straw that uh, breaks a camel's back sort of analogy. Uh, so the lawnmower didn't do that. You'll see this in the woods where there's nobody doing anything around that tree, and it just suddenly collapses, and, and it's not able to sustain. And, you know, saying exactly why that tree died is, is kind of difficult. Uh, it is somewhat of a random thing. The The soil is different as you go through an area. Uh, there can be variations of how, how moist it is, how dry it is, how, how uh, compacted or sand silk clay can vary from one area to another. You have each tree is a different genetic. Um, it came from an acorn, so like people, everyone's a little bit different. So the susceptibility to certain problems could be greater. Uh, and it, it's then the environment around it, what's growing around it and the competition and things. These are all factors. And so I, I couldn't tell you why that tree died, but I can tell you the kinds of things that contribute to that. Yes. Well, it got plenty of water. Um, so I uh, just will pay for it to be taken down in the spring next year, I guess. It is, it is, uh, it is a, um, an expense, I know, to pull those out. And we always hate to lose a big tree. Uh, now, you mentioned plenty of water, but I, one thing I didn't mention is that excessive water can be a problem for post oaks. Um, you'll see a post oak that's living in the woods, and we move in and clear away some brush, put, put uh, grass sod around them, and start watering, and then we suddenly find the trees are starting to die. Uh, post oaks just don't like that. They don't like the soil disturbed. They don't like um, the um, suddenly what was mm-hmm. kind of r- dry and fairly well drained suddenly now is kind of soggy wet. Other trees would do just fine in that condition, but post oaks are not very tolerant of that. Well, it hasn't gotten any more water uh, now than it had before, and we've uh, lived with this tree for 23 years and uh, so well that's definitely a big loss that's for sure is a big loss i would be thinking about what uh, kind of tree you might want to put in if you would like another one there Uh, something to go in pretty soon after you get that one out so you can be on your way to having some shade again Uh, but that that would be my best suggestion Uh, at this point there's of course nothing that you can do All right. Well, thank you for the information. All right. Well, thank you for the call, Phyllis. Uh, Goodbye. Bye-bye. Our number is 845-5689, 845-5689, 
or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And I was talking a moment ago about uh, Robert's question with the lawn where you've got some dead areas and then some living areas. Um, I think a lot of people this year, especially those who are trying to not use so much water, uh, may have found their St. Augustine in conditions where it's starting to die out and now you have a few sprigs trying to regrow. Uh, that That is always a tough call. And again, there's not a nice black and white line that I use the little one foot apart in the sprigs or the living parts as a general guide because healthy St. Augustine can close over a, a one foot area quite pretty rapidly in the during the growing season. Of course, not in the upcoming late fall and winter season. Um, and so you're just going to have to kind of make some decisions on what you're willing to look at and how much you want to spend on the area. Uh, in order to in order to be able to do that, I think one of the other things we're going to be seeing in our St. Augustine lawns, uh, as a result of the summer we had, uh, is an increase in take all root rot. Take all root rot is a is an opportunist fungi. It is a disease that can be out there in nature, but not necessarily killing the grass. But as the grass gets weakened, then the disease moves in and can begin to literally kill the lawn. A lot of our St. Augustine diseases cause spots on the leaves or other, other such things, you know, maybe lesions on the runners, but they're not just absolutely quickly deadly. Uh, but with take-all root rot, it kills roots and it kills runners, therefore, and plants. And so you can have areas that literally die out. Those big circles we see that are will soon be appearing as the weather's cooling off and rain, re rain returns, uh, that's large patch, and they it just rots the leaves off of the runners, and then you got this round-ish spot out there in your yard, uh, and, and uh, by the time spring arrives, it starts to regreen because the grass isn't dead; it just had the leaves rotted off the runner, the grass blades rotted off, and uh, so with take all though, on the other hand, that grass is dead, and so the weakened grass from the drought. Uh, that we went through, I think we're going to see a little bit more of the take-all coming up. Now there are there are fungicides that you can use to manage take-all root rot. Uh, Texas AgriLife Extension has a really good publication. If you go to the AgriLife Learn website, you can download a publication on take-all root rot that includes the products that are the ingredients of the products that uh, might help uh, deter that disease. Uh, we're doing a little experimenting this fall with some uh, peat moss, which uh, some trials many years ago with AgriLife Extension showed peat moss uh, as having a little bit of benefit. And that's spread out over the lawn. It was spread about a third inch deep, not very much, and watered in. And it seemed to help suppress that disease a little bit. That's not hit a point yet where it is an official recommendation, where we have enough of the research-based uh, evidence to say yes, do this as a control, uh, but we're trying it out to see see if we see any benefits from it, and maybe someday that that may prove to be something we would want to recommend. But I just mention it as a possibility now, but not not providing it as a recommendation. Uh, this disease is a significant one because it is one of the few diseases that just flat kills the grass. Uh, but you, the main thing you can do for your lawn is prevent stress. So things like drought cause stress. 
things like some of the post-emergent herbicides used when the weather's above 85 cause stress. Uh, some of the pre-emergent herbicides that inhibit rooting at the, of the grass. As a runner goes out there at each node, it would like to put down roots. But when these herbicides are over-applied, the roots don't get down in the ground. It inhibits them from moving on. That's how it kill, kills that's how they kill developing weed seeds. Uh, and so those can stress uh, the grass. Uh, compaction of the soil, uh, foot traffic over the ground, a lot of things can stress the grass. So you want to keep it in as healthy of condition as you can by proper mowing, watering, and fertilizing uh, in order to avoid these. Because to have weak stress grass and just constantly spraying it to try to keep it alive is not a good, it's not a good uh, strategy. Uh, I, I think it's a stretch to compare grass to human health, but I think it makes a lot of sense to say if you don't eat well, if you don't exercise, you don't get enough sleep, you don't take care of yourself, you're more likely to get sick. And I think that is often true even in the plant world to some degree or another. Uh, and so just think about that. Think about avoiding the stresses, whether it's your post oak tree or whether it's your St. Augustine lawn or any other plant, uh, and you can avoid a lot of the problems. Now, speaking of oaks, just like I mentioned, take all root rot is probably going to be a little bit worse this year. I guess time will prove me right or wrong on that. Uh, I think that we're going to see more uh, of certain tree diseases as a result of the stress. There's a disease called hypoxylin canker, and you, you see it on a, typically on an oak tree. It can attack other species, but the bark just falls off a section of a branch, and that, that whole limb or branch dies. And where the bark fell off, it may be kind of a dusty olive drab color where you rub your finger on it, and you've kind of got that olive dusty material, that spores. Or it may turn a kind of a hard silvery and black uh, color. Uh, that is also a sign of hypoxylin. But once that happens, there's no spray in the tree to control it. The disease is out there in nature. It's all over the place now. It always is. But when the tree gets stressed, the disease gets the upper hand. And once it moves in and does that, there's no stopping it on that tree. Now, maybe it'll only kill a limb and the rest of the tree may survive. Often it, it is much worse than that. Or the amount of the tree that it damaged is so much that you have a really um, unattractive now tree that you, where you've pruned out all these large dead areas and it's it, you know it's it's just ugly and, and it's not worth keeping. Uh, it has ruined the structure of it. Uh, now again, there's there's no spray to prevent it, and at this point in the season, there's nothing needed to be done. We we now are getting cooler temperatures. Uh, we do get some rain here and there, and that keeps the soil adequately moist. And plus, the leaves are coming off pretty soon uh, so that uh, they're not pumping water, and the dormant tree is just fine in, in that stage. But you may notice next year that we are starting to see some increased loss. There's always some of this around. I saw some this year on campus on some trees, uh, and it, the, the uh, hypoxylin is, is a, uh, we'll say, ubiquitous uh, kind of fungal organism. Uh, but it's just another example of uh, anything we do to avoid stress helps avoid some more serious things because there are those opportunists. Well, that's probably beating that horse uh, uh, way more than we need to, so I'm going to move on. We'll talk about something else. Uh, our phone number is 
845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu gardensuccess at tamu dot edu uh, Marion writes, uh, they are having some work done in the yard and workers are coming in, uh, setting up a place where they're, you know, cutting cutting lumber uh, to, to build some structure and uh, kind of tromping around on the grass uh, for a number of days and and uh, is kind of concerned about that, that effect of that traffic on the grass. Well, uh, anything you can do to kind of lessen the, the foot stomping, uh, you know, certainly putting Putting some some boards down for them to stand on would be fine, uh, but the problem is if if you throw like a piece of plywood on your lawn for four or five days, and when you pick that plywood up, it's going to look pretty bad under there. It's going to be a lot of uh, gray leaf spot first of all, and the grass will be yellowing, and you see some problems. So you know if it's just a day or two that you're going to do something, that would be one way to avoid the wear and tear. Uh, other than that, you would just have to try to locate uh, the work in another area other than right there and minimize the traffic on any one given area. Uh, that's about the only thing I can suggest uh, to that. And if you've got like wheelbarrows that are going through carrying some, I don't know, sand or rock or whatever might be going on in construction, uh, having a, a bunch of boards where they can run across and, and sort of spread that weight from that single little, all that pressure being right on where the wheelbarrow tire and then people's feet are, um, is is a good idea, but again, don't leave them on all the time. Just use them uh, to spread the pressure. And by that, I mean it's kind of like a snowshoe. You know, people go out and try to walk through the snow, and your feet are small carrying your full weight, and you just go straight down. But a snowshoe spreads that weight out. And so when we use like sections of plywood, we can avoid that compaction by spreading the weight out a little bit wider. Uh, and it'll do a lot of good and or it'll prevent a lot of damage to the lawn to do that. Uh, just remember that trade-off. Just don't leave them on for a week. Hopefully that uh, will help a little bit. Uh, we had a question come in from John. John has a, a cypress trees and oak trees. And they just look like some of them are dying. And as I look at the pictures, I see some evidence of green on them. Uh, and so let me answer the, the, uh, those two separately. The cypress, cypress is a tree that is pretty darn resilient. You know, you think about cypress growing in a swamp, but I'm always impressed how it does even with a drought. It doesn't like drought. But every, oh, about August, sometimes you'll see cypress in, planted in medians around town, uh, maybe with um, uh, pavers around them. And, and uh, the trees in the heat, late season and dry, they start to brown out. And then you see new sprigs of green coming out at the tips of the branches, and they generally come back. Now, that certainly wasn't good for the tree, but I find that cypress survives that pretty well. And so I don't worry as much about cypress browning out, and especially with your trees showing some little green on the ends, uh, they're just coming right back and, tr and trying to grow. Of course, that those little green sprigs are going to be gone soon with the, the arrival of some cold weather. Uh, as far as the oak tree, though, on the other hand, uh, I see a lot of dead areas. And when, when a tree gets stressed from drought, from construction, uh, uh, damage like trenching or compaction and other things, it typically, an oak tree will typically die back from the ends of the branches, the periphery. Think of it as the furthest areas from water. And then it may try to regroup 
and when conditions improve and regrow because the tree needs leaves to survive and we get a lot of what what is referred to as trunk sprouting so you have a tree that instead of the big canopy having a lot of green now that's browned out and you've got uh, lower areas on the trunk or the main branches that try to regrow uh, the tree may then survive with that drop down and resprout but when you get in there with a chainsaw and you're cutting uh, the dead branches out, the dead trunk, the dead major scaffold branches, you end up with a pretty marred tree and giant wounds that are never going to completely close over with callus tissues. And in that case, a judgment has, call has to be made to it's better to pull it out and put something else in or not. And uh, you just have to look at it. The one I see uh, there, John, in your picture looks like one I would replace. I would get rid of it and put something else in due to the amount of damage that has occurred to that tree. Also, oftentimes when they start dying back like that, one thing leads to another. You know, I was mentioning hypoxylin before as a possibility. Uh, there, sometimes one thing can lead to another and it just continues to decline. So the sooner you bite the bullet, get it out of there, and if you want another tree, get a new uh, uh, tree planted and going. Fall is the best time to do that. Uh, fall being from now on, really, all the way until spring, is a good time to plant. But the sooner between now and spring that you plant, the better, because the tree has more time to establish roots and be ready for next summer, which we hope will be not as hot and a little wetter than this summer was. Hopefully that's helpful. Well, our phone number is 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, looking at the emails, had an email from Todd, um, and uh, someone in their family there has some Virginia buttonweed that is in their lawn, I assume. It doesn't say lawn, but that's usually the case. Uh, Virginia buttonweed is a very difficult weed to control. Uh, when it comes to finding products that control it, they are few and far between. And I would probably have to get back to the office and get some of my reference material to make a really good recommendation. Uh, it looks like they're looking at using a dicamba and uh, something called Fahrenheit, um, uh, metsulfuron, methyl. Um, that may well work. I would check before I confirm that that's going to be a good combination. But one thing I can tell you is the product Fahrenheit uh, or metsulfuron methyl, it's also sold as something called Manor, I believe. Um, those products can be very damaging to woody ornamentals in the landscape. So when you put them on the grass, uh, and you overuse them especially, or you put them on right before a rain that washes them down in the soil, you can see some significant damage to other plants in the landscape. So be very careful. Read that label very carefully. Now, Virginia buttonweed is a, is a perennial weed. It also produces uh, little seed uh, um, balls on the, along the, the vine that it creates. And those will then come up as, as seed wheat from seed next year, but you also have the fact that it is a perennial. Virginia buttonweed loves wet weather or wet conditions. And so if you overwater, you will have a proliferation of that weed. If you back off on water and just water properly, a good soaking on a very infrequent basis and keep your grass healthy, uh, but don't overwater, it doesn't mean the ver buttonweed will die. It just means it won't proliferate as rapidly as it will when you overwater. So another reason not to overwater. Uh, 
you can do some spraying on it now. Uh, it, has, it has been uh, reproductive since summer, meaning it's blooming and it's got the little seed, seed uh, that are developing on it. Uh, and so you may not find it to be really effective spraying now, but you may get something out of it. But especially next year when you begin to see it growing, things will be warming up again. Uh, you may want to try one of your products. But uh, give, me a, give me a call at the Extension Office and let me get a hold of some reference material so I can do a better job of suggesting a product and a timing uh, for doing that. Well, let's talk a little bit about some things that are going on around town. Uh, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society is inviting the public to the October meeting, and that is on Wednesday, October the 12th at 6.30 p.m., at the Brazos Museum of Natural History out 3232 Briarcrest out across the bypass in Bryan. And this month's program is Birds and Biodiversity of the Yucatan Peninsula, a self-guided trip report. So you will hear all about some of the birds and some of the biodiversity encountered uh, in going through the Yucatan. And I have actually uh, taking trips down there. That is an amazing place. Boy, it sure is hot in the summer. Uh, but there, there is an amazing amount of plant and animal life the, that is just thriving uh, down in that region. So I think you'll enjoy that. That's next Wednesday, October the 12th uh, at the Brazos Museum of Natural History. Uh, let's see here. We've also got coming up. Uh, now this is a little distance away, but I want to tell you about it anyway. Uh, on um, October the 13th through 15th, that's uh, a weekend, Saturday, Sunday, uh, down in Houston at the Church of St. John the Divine, uh, 2450 River Oaks Boulevard. Now, I know I said it was far away, but they're hosting their 80th annual Bulb and Plant Mart. And I'm telling you that is, if you're interested in bulbs and you're looking for bulbs that are not common, um, that that is a wonderful resource. They have a lot of bulbs, and and when we say bulbs, we are generally including bulb-like plants or things with rhizomes or or whatnot, not just bulbs. But uh, it is a great resource for that. Now, don't delay. I would not. I would go on the first day and pretty early. You can also do pre-ordering, and that that uh, has actually, excuse me, the pre-ordering has already has already ended. So uh, that would be Saturday, October 13th through 15th. Garden Club of Houston hosts it, and it goes from 9 to 5 p.m. each day. Uh, and if you want more information, you can go to gchouston.org slash info with a hyphen between each of those. Just, just search for or just go to gchouston.org and look for the information on the bulb and plant mart. And this would be for the collector. You know, we have a lot of bulbs available throughout the area, uh, more common bulbs here. Uh, but if you're looking for the unusual, uh, that would also be a place to go and consider that. Be worth the trip down. Uh, and then on the 14th and 15th of October, uh, out at Brookwood Community in Brookshire. If you've never been down there, it's an interesting trip as well. It's a special facility uh, for folks uh, teaching horticulture as a uh, life skill. And the, uh, they have greenhouses and things, but they're going to have a special event called the Succulent Pumpkin Centerpiece Workstop, Workshop. So you can create a succulent pumpkin centerpiece in a hands-on workshop. 
uh, with Brookwood uh, plants and advice from their folks there. Uh, and that is on October 14th and October 15th. There are four sessions each day, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 12.30 p.m. and 2 p.m. So basically imagine getting a big pumpkin, hollowing it out, and creating a beautiful fall centerpiece out of it, a hands-on workshop. And it is a distance. It's down in Brookshire, Texas, which you all down to even below I-10, just a little bit down there. Uh, but you may find that uh, not only uh, fun, but of course educational as well. Uh, let's see. On today, uh, today at the Ringer Library Meeting Room at 1818 Harvey Mitchell uh, Boulevard in College Station at the Ringer Library. Uh, Joseph Johnson, who is garden manager out at the gardens at Texas A&M, will speak on winterizing your garden. He'll talk about some simple steps and tips to help you prepare your garden for the upcoming winter months. And that's a free event. Uh, and Joseph is extremely knowledgeable and, and, a, and just a, a really uh, good uh, presenter as well. I think you'll, you'll find it very, very enjoyable and very educational in the process. Well, our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or you can email me at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Edu. Oh, let's go on and talk about some more things. There's a lot going on in October. Uh, just about any kind of plant you're interested in seems like there's something going on. Uh, the Brazos County Rose Society uh, is meeting uh, at noon on Tuesday, October 11th at the Outback Steakhouse in College Station. That's October 11th, Tuesday at noon, Brazos County Rose Society meeting at Outback Steakhouse. On the 12th, Wednesday, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society is going to have their meeting, 630, the, the program I just spoke about, Birds and Biodiversity of the Yucatan. Uh, then on uh, October the 13th, the Brazos Valley Orchid Society will meet at Fire Station Number 6 Community Room. That's at the corner of Tarot and University Drive. If you have uh, blooming orchids or orchids that aren't blooming and you want help bringing them back to life, uh, show up there 7 o'clock to 9 p.m. at the Fire Station uh, Number 6 Community Room, Brazos Valley Orchid Society, and that's Thursday the 13th. Then on Friday the 14th, this is a busy week of gardening, uh, the A&M Garden Club meets at 9.30 a.m. at Peace Lutheran Church. And there will be a program on the Never Forget Garden at the Brazos Valley Veterans Memorial. And that's one I've actually uh, had some involvement in myself. Uh, but out in uh, um, the uh, Veterans Park, out to the east, uh, go out University to the east, or Highway 30, you can get to it either way, uh, there is a, a special garden that has been or being developed called the Never Forget Garden, the Brazos Valley Veterans Memorial. And they'll be presenting on Friday the 14th uh, at Peace Lutheran Church, 9.30 a.m., which, and by the way, it's 2201 Rio Grande Boulevard, about that garden, and you'll learn a lot more about what is going on out there. It's a wonderful project. Then on Tuesday, October the 18th, uh, the Texas A&M Women's Club Garden Interest Group meets at 10 a.m. And they're going to have a field trip, and this time it'll be a field trip out uh, having a tour at Millican Reserve 
farm. So uh, the farm manager will give a tour showing the practices of how they grow their high-quality nutrient-dense produce year-round as part of community-supported agriculture. Now that's Tuesday the 18th at 10 a.m. it begins. Now if you've not been to the farmers market, uh, I, know the, I know they're at the one downtown on Main Street. Uh, the Millican Reserve Farm is there uh, and you can, you can order produce uh, as part of their community supported agriculture. So what a CSA amounts to is instead of just a farm that harvests and comes and sells at the market, which is a wonderful thing, and there, there are farms doing that, uh, and with community supported agriculture, you contribute to the farm and you buy a harvest share. And then through the course of that period of time, uh, whatever the farm is producing is the kind of produce that is made available for you to have then. And uh, so that helps support the farm with a, with a dependable source of income, and it provides you a range of things through the course of the year where you get to eat seasonally uh, according to what the farm uh, is producing. And it's a good idea, it's a wonderful project, and it's really helping small farms uh, get a good start and again have that financial income to be able to continue to operate. I highly would recommend that as well. Well, I tell you what, let's pause in the in the what's going on around town for a moment, and we're going to go to the phones, the number 845-5689, and talk to Maggie. Hello, Maggie. Hello, Skip. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yes. I just wanted to ask you a few questions about transplanting and is what the best time of the year to do that. So okay. I just have a little small list, and one is the knockout roses. Okay. Uh, so is it when you say transplanting, you mean like digging one up from your yard and putting it somewhere else, or do you mean just absolutely, buying? Okay. absolutely, yeah. Now's the time. Uh, now's a good time. So once we okay. actually, I'm a, I don't know. I might give it another two weeks. Uh, it's it's still you know when we're in the 90s, that's a little hot. So I usually start about mid mid October. Uh, but any time toward the end of October and November is also a really good time. And you just want to go dig the plant up. And, uh, you know, when you try to dig a rose like a knockout or something out, don't worry about how deep you dig. If you even get six inches or so, eight inches deep, and can then dig under the plant, but get a little wider, not so deep, but the wider you get, the better. I usually will slide a tarp underneath it as I'm kind of digging, and then you can kind of lean the bush the other way and, and dig under there and slide the, the plant up onto a tarp so you never have to lift it because uh, you will put your chiropractor's kids through college if you try to put a big, pick up a big root ball full of soil. Soil is extremely heavy. Uh, and, yes. and then just drag it with the tarp to where you want it to go. Okay. What about, is that the, I need also Nandinas, Ligustrums? Uh, The lantanas are are getting ready to, you know, die at the first freeze. So Mm -hmm. should I just dig them up after I've cut them down and right before spring? Yes, you could. You could you could dig and move them at that time, or you could you could dig and move them at the same time if you wanted to. Okay. Uh, but they okay. are going to die back. Just mulch them really well. You know they are dependably hardy here, but you know should we have a real cold winter, just mulch them pretty well, because you want to be able to to uh, just protect them. You got a new plant that just had all its roots cut and it's been moved, and so just give it a little extra TLC through the winter that way. 
sure. And then a couple of shows back, I heard you say that, you know, under the live oak trees, they don't like anything but the leaves off their dead leaves off their trees. Mm-hmm. So I, I have, uh, you know, St. Augustine grass grown up to mine, mm-hmm. but it's starting to thin a little bit and the roots are starting to rise up a little bit. So I right. know that's fine. However, is it don't plant anything, let it go, just throw the mulch over it, you know, just to keep the weeds down maybe a little bit? Or is the Asiatic ivy okay to transplant around uh, a live oak? Uh, The uh, Asian jasmine is is actually a a fine plant to put around a live oak. So it's used a lot uh, through the south, and it tolerates a little less light than your grass would. Uh, and it, because it has these long runners, uh, one of the problems around the base of a live oak is those roots are so big and there's so many of them that there's not much soil for grass to be able to get roots in and have a dependable moisture supply. Uh, but with the with the Asian jasmine, it can just run its runners out even away from the plant, and so you get a nice, uh, complete blanket or carpet, if you will, of green all the way underneath it. So it, it is especially well suited to that. Okay. Because uh, like I said, the trees are now 30 years old and I have little islands around them. Yes. And some of them, you know, all my trees are that except for this one. Mm-hmm. And now it's gotten big and the grass is just not not as thick. So, right. okay, I, I got a volunteer chunk of Asiatic or Asian ivy asian jasmine and i uh-huh. said what am i going to do with it so I said, okay live oaks i've seen them there so just want to check with you that it's okay to put that yes uh, over around the tree okay yes it is well, thank and, you very much and fall's a good time helpful. yeah fall's okay, a great I time will. okay thank you kate thank you so much bye-bye our phone number is 845-5689 oh excuse me that was maggie and now we're going to talk to kate hello kate yes hi <laughs> yes um Bulbs. Yes. I bought a pack of mixture daffodils and grape hyacinths. Okay. And it says for our region, plant them now. Mm-hmm. I normally don't have luck with bulbs here. I've tried tulips, and that's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm thinking about putting these in a pot. Okay. And I've never planted bulbs in a pot. Is that okay? You can. Uh, it's a little more of a challenge in a pot. Uh, than, than it would be in the ground. But uh, you can plant them in a pot as long as you got adequate amount of soil and you keep them moderately moist. Uh, don't over-fertilize them. Bulbs don't need a lot of extra nitrogen pushing them along. Be very careful with that. Uh, but I would probably plant them in the ground if it, if it were me. But, but they, okay. can, they can yeah. be grown in a pot. Now, one of the challenges with bulbs is getting a bulb that will naturalize in our area. So tulips don't, and that's, that's why you've had trouble with tulips. Among the daffodils and the paper whites, uh, their cousins, the paper whites, some of them do a pretty good job of naturalizing, and some of them not so much. And so it kind of depends on in that mix of things you bought, uh, what's in there. And you may find that some do come back the next year and the year after that, whereas others kind of tend to dwindle away. I have tried the grape hyacinths before because I loved them when I lived on the East Coast. Yes. And they came up and they bloomed for one season, but they Mm -hmm. didn't come back. Yeah, we have some. The Master Gardeners uh, have the Demonstration Idea Garden out on Highway 21 in North Bryan. 
And uh, they have some grape hyacinths out there, and they, they have been returning, but they're not just proliferating. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like now you have this beautiful sea of blue that's or bluish purple that's out there, uh, but you do see them coming up still. So they're they're kind of a fairly dependable bulb, not not among the most uh, uh, be- not among the best at naturalizing here. Okay, so I'm going to put them in the ground okay. and not worry about them through the winter and mm-hmm. not fertilize. Just leave them. I mean, what if we have another winter like we did last time? It will not bother the bulb at all. They're underground. Okay. They'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. Just okay. Put them in the ground. Go online and look up how deep to plant them. In general, we plant a bulb about three times as deep as the bulb is tall or wide but mm-hmm. but read about the bulbs you got so that you put your daffodils at the right depth and your hyacinth at the right depth for that species okay all right all right thank you much you bet take care uh now we're going to go to the phones and talk to roger hello roger hello there skip how are you doing i'm well thank you uh, i've got a package that i got uh, some time ago of uh, milkweed seeds Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't come uh, from a fellow Lions Club member who's into butterflies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, don't, it, it, I didn't come with any uh, instructions on where and when to plant those. Can you help yeah. me out with that? Boy, that's a challenge. Uh, there's a lot of different kinds of milkweed, so I can't give you one answer that fits them all. Uh, the The milkweed that you see most commonly in gardens around here is Mexican milkweed or tropical milkweed uh, is the name of it. And it comes up real tall on straight upright stalks and has orange and yellow bloom clusters. Uh, There is a form that has all yellow bloom clusters. Uh, If it's that type, you just drop the seed anywhere and they're going to come up. I mean, it's like a weed weed when it reseeds. It's easily easy to grow. Uh, Some of the other milkweeds that uh, there's an orange milkweed that's native out in the pastures. There are are just a lot of different milkweeds here in Texas. And some of those are quite challenging to get up and growing. And I I can't give you a good description over the the air, but if you would email me at the AgriLife Extension Office, I can can send you an instruction form that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. But it often involves a cold treatment uh, to the seeds, cold and sometimes moisture. Uh, and so that gets a little more complicated. Yeah, it sounds more complicated. I think I remember that uh, Henry Hiller gave me the seeds that said they were Mexicans. Okay. Well, if they're, if they're the standard tropical type, um, then just put them anywhere. <laughs> they're going to come up. Uh, but I, I would probably wait. I, I probably would start them in little four-inch pots as we get toward the end of winter indoors, you know, get them going, and then move them out as it warms up out into the garden. Okay, so four-inch pots uh, later on uh, uh, this year and uh, and transplant them in, into the into a bed. Uh, yeah, maybe next- maybe late March or something, put them in a bed, maybe start them uh, at the beginning of March indoors, and as they get big enough, move them outside. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's what I need to know. Thank you so much. All right. Well, good luck with that. And thanks for the call, Roger. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. I did want to mention another another thing, uh, an event coming up. Now, this is pretty far out, but I, I want you to 
to uh, at least have the notice of it as we get closer. Uh, on Tuesday, October 25th, uh, our Brazos County Master Gardeners are having a program uh, entitled Selecting, Planting, and Caring for Trees in Our Urban Texas Gardens. And Gretchen Riley, who is uh, with the Forest Systems Department at Texas A&M Forest Service, will be talking about how to select trees, how to plant trees, and how to care for trees in your urban gardens. And this is open to the public. It is, uh, there's no charge. Uh, it's free to come. And it'll be at the AgriLife Extension Office, uh, which is out near the county tax office. Easy to find out there, uh, just uh, east of the bypass off University Drive back in that, that area, but next to the county tax office. So I hope you will come to some of these programs we've been talking about, a lot of good, interesting things. Uh, keep in mind, by the way, that uh, um, not only are we here every Thursday with Garden Success, uh, where you can call in or you can email and we can visit with you about some of your questions. But on Wednesdays, uh, the, uh, Jennifer Nations with the City College Station uh, Water Department it has a program called Waterful Wednesdays. That's at 9.30 a.m. here on KAMU-FM. And uh, you'll learn all about uh, best practices for water, procedures, as well as safety tips and so on. You can find past episodes on the website here at KAMU, as you can our Garden Success shows, the past episodes. Uh, but Waterful Wednesdays, uh, learn a little bit about things going on with our water department and how you can can uh, take care of, uh, in other words, conserve and, and utilize in a very efficient way water around your home. Uh, and then on Wednesdays and Fridays, uh, Aggie Horticulture's Facebook page uh, is an opportunity to view a live and, rec and recorded short talks on various gardening topics, and that's at 1 p.m. That's Aggie Horticulture Facebook page, uh, and it's a live, it, it's aired live event. Some of them are pre-recorded at 1 p.m. And you might want to check out some of those. I think you'll find those of interest. And of course, I mentioned earlier the farmer's market down uh, on Main Street. Uh, we have uh, farmer's market, uh, the South Brazos County farmer's market is on Tuesdays from noon to five at the corner of University of Glen Haven. And then also on Friday from noon to five in the same location. That's out by the Scott and White Clinic, which is where university and the bypass come together. Uh, so. I think you'll find all our farmers markets to be uh, a great opportunity. Now we, we have, uh, there's a farmers market uh, that is at the Stella Hotel called The Local. It's each Tuesday through November 29th, and that's at the Stella Hotel out on Lake Atlas Drive. Uh, and there's a lot of different vendors that come out to that. They go from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. And then Farm Fridays uh, out on Tabor Road that's 2861 Tabor Road uh, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., uh, a market offering fresh local produce, uh, eggs, uh, all kinds of other things as well. So no excuse not to get good, healthy, uh, healthy um, uh, produce from our local farms uh, throughout this area. Well, our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. Or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. I had a question on email uh, from, um, let's see, email from Eddie and Tammy. And this was a yopon tree with berries, and the leaves are kind of turning yellowish. 
uh, and what is what is going on there. A lot of times with a holly as they're producing berries, they'll go through a period where the leaves get a little bit yellow. Maybe it's a little bit of a lack of iron. I'm not sure. Uh, that generally fixes itself, but you might want to try putting a little bit of fertilizer around it, especially a little bit of iron. Not a whole lot of nitrogen fertilizer, but just a little bit. Uh, a little bit of iron. I think it'll be okay too. Uh, but just kind of watch it and keep us posted. Maybe, uh, maybe that another measure uh, needs to be taken on it. But I think I think it'll be just fine uh, if you if you do that. Uh, let's see. We had a question uh, from John, uh, and let's see. Um, trying to go back to the question here. I lost track of it. Um, I'm going to have to come back to that one. I'm sorry, I lost I lost track of that question. Uh, Kim Kane um, had uh, uh, an email that sent, and and Kim says that uh, he's trying to plant a bed in an area surrounded uh, surrounding an oak tree, and the roots are so shallow he can't get a hole deep, deep enough. Deep enough. Is there a way to circumvent the roots, or should he just use a different bed? Well, that was what I was saying earlier about the Asian jasmine. Uh, when you're trying to plant a plant around an oak tree, those roots are everywhere. The soil is just about full of roots. Uh, maybe not just the big roots, but so many small roots, big as your finger, even smaller, that you can't dig a hole. And uh, other than cutting roots, uh, I just probably wouldn't recommend that. Not that it's going to hurt the tree a lot to cut roots for a hole, uh, but that's going to be a real tough place for a plant to get a good head start because instead of having a lot of soil, it's got a lot of woody root tissues all around the place, and, and it's a more challenging spot. That's why I like something that is like a, a vining, shade-loving ground cover like Asian jasmine because it can it can find its way in there and do pretty good. Uh, if you if you stay out from the tree a little bit, you might also want to consider just using a little bit of a bark mulch around the base of the tree and go out some distance from that until there's a little more access to some soil. You know, right up close to the trunk, it's essentially zero soil. And then as you get out further and further away, you may have a little more of an opportunity to put in some kind of, uh, like, uh, fall flowers that Kim is wanting to plant or, or, or whatever else. Just keep in mind that um, anything that you plant is going to, if it's a perennial, it's going to need to be able to survive in the shade during the summer. Of course, in the cool season, cool season flowers and annuals, the tree's dropping its leaves and there's good sunlight coming in there, so they, they should do okay. And I hope that uh, I hope that, that uh, works uh, pretty well. Let's see. I think we I think we covered most of that there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, things that are going on in the vegetable garden. Uh, at this time of the year, we are in the best season for planting all kinds of cool season vegetable crops. So the, all the blue leaf vegetables, we call them cruciferous vegetables or coal crops. That would be broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower and kohlrabi. Uh, collards and kale. Uh, mustard actually is also one of those, even though it's not the blue leaf vegetable. Uh, those can all be planted now. Uh, best probably planted as transplants now, but you could probably get away with some seeds as long as our, our hard cold weather uh, delays a little bit. 
those all do well. Uh, as it cools off a little bit this month, uh, carrots uh, would, would do well to be planted in the second half of the month. Uh, and even things like radishes uh, can be planted. And, uh, you know, as far as beets are concerned, uh, we're kind of toward the end of the time. But if you hurry up, you may get a little bit of a, a crop of beets in. You certainly would at least get beet and greens in, which are also good to eat. Uh, Artichokes, if you are fortunate enough to find a place that sells artichoke transplants, uh, which occasionally you can find, uh, those can be planted now. Go ahead and get them in. Don't delay. Uh, you want to get some size on them before we get into really cold weather, uh, and they should do just fine. If the temperature is going to drop down in the low 20s, I would throw a cover over them just as an extra uh, precaution, uh, but they'll do fine going over the winter and then producing in the spring. And our leafy greens like lettuce and like spinach, uh, they all do well. Uh, at this time of planted at this time of year also. Uh, if you've got some uh, multiplying onions, you can put those in. If you've got leeks that you want to plant, uh, hurry up and get those in. Don't take too much time. Go ahead and get those in. Uh, and uh, yeah, so even garlic. Uh, October is a wonderful month for planting garlic. So a lot going on in the vegetable garden. In fact, I would say that that October may be one of the busiest months out in the vegetable garden. You know, you're still getting a few harvests from some of your warm season crops that are still going, and all the cool season crops are going in as well. So we have those two traffic jams a year in the vegetable garden. One is in the spring as we come out of the cool season garden into the warm season, and now we're on the other end of the year where the other traffic jam occurs, and that's here I've got tomatoes and green beans and squash, and I'm trying to make room for broccoli and all the other things we talked about. Uh, get out there and enjoy your garden. This is such wonderful weather. Just remember that when you plant, put in a good mulch around the plants so that you don't have to mess with weeds, and it makes gardening so much more fun. Well, I hope you're back with us again next Thursday at noon. Tell your friends about the show, and let's have fun out in the garden. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.